When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is David Carmone to talk about his book, Architecture and the Senses in the Italian Renaissance, The Varieties of Architectural Experience. David is Professor of the History of Art and Architecture in the Department of Visual Arts and Head of the Architectural Studies Program at Holy Cross. David, thank you for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brian. appreciate it. Now, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, I I was, uh, just in terms of my background, I, I started off as a, uh, in architecture school. I actually went to, I, I got an MARC. Um, and, you know, had a, a degree where I was planning to become a designer. Uh, but as I was in that program, I was fortunate to also begin to take courses in the history of architecture. And I had a really wonderful advisor, Christy Anderson uh, at Yale. She, you know, kind of hooked me on Renaissance architecture, which was something that I had never even really encountered before. So this was a kind of a indirect way into the field for me. But, uh, you know, at that point, I kind of shifted gears. And my final project at Yale was a, uh, an investigation of actually a, a kind of the building of a masonry vault uh, in, in a 16th century French chateau. Um, and, and from that, it kind of led into one thing led to another. I ended up studying, uh, uh, you know, going on into the history of architecture. And, uh, and now I've been working in this field for, for some time. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been kind of a wonderful trajectory for me. So I thinking about practice, um, but also about history has been really an you know, exciting combination. Very interesting. And so uh, right into the theme of the book. So of course, you know, most of us in the architecture field are very familiar with how the senses kind of interact with architecture. And yet there's quite a bit in the book that, you know, I've personally never thought of, and I think there's a lot more to it. So could you maybe walk us through a little bit what brought about the idea of the book and then maybe a, a quick synopsis of the book itself. Sure. The, the book itself um, was again, a kind of fortuitous project in some ways I had been, my previous work was on the history of archeology. span uh, My dissertation was on uh, ancient remains in Rome during the 15th and 16th centuries. I was studying really the history of preservation and thinking about how buildings have been treated in many different ways 
um, over time and how we could evaluate those kinds of earlier interventions in ways that were maybe not so, uh, I guess, harsh in the sense that we could understand potentially how they might have reasons to intervene in the way they did. And in fact, that they were also thinking about preservation perhaps in a different way than, than we do now. Um, but that, again, it was, it was really an exciting way to rethink a lot of assumptions about how, um, you know, what, what we sort of, how we understand, understand preservation to work. Uh, but then, so I, I was finishing up that book at the Canadian Center for Architecture. I was, um, uh, had a fellowship up in Montreal and it was, uh, again, a really kind of fortuitous or serendipitous, um, coincidence because I, I, Montreal proved to be a place where all sorts of really interesting work was going on with regard to the history of the senses that, uh, you know, sensory kind of studies uh, based at Concordia University. There's a, there's a um, kind of whole uh, area focused on that, that uh, has been driven by Constance Klassen and David House were the founders for the center, for the center. They were the founders of the center for sensory studies at Concordia, and there had recently been an exhibition at even at the CCA that had been organized by Mirko Zardini, which was called "The Sense of the City: An Alternate Approach to Urbanism." And so these were issues that were really very lively and uh, exciting and dynamic. And uh, and so I was, you know, fascinated by this and thinking about the ways that it might actually also inform my own field, the way that it could sort of make me rethink the study of the history of architecture, uh, the history of, of Italian Renaissance architecture. And so I have to confess that this was actually, for me, you know, I think many architectural uh, students now are familiar with the idea of the senses. When I went to architecture school, there really wasn't much discussion of sensory experience. I have to say, I even came into the field from the direction of one of a person who was really interested in, in drawing and in um, visual representations. And we did, of course, model and we were thinking about spatial issues, but it was really about a kind of a, um, it was a visual product, right? We were really thinking about it in terms of visual forms. And so, you know, this was a kind of a a revelation for me in the sense that architecture is not just visual, right? That it, I mean, it's, again, it seems so obvious that I can't believe that it was something I hadn't thought more about, but, um, you know, it was really, I I was really thinking about visual experience. And um, so to consider these materials from this new direction kind of really blew me away. And, uh, and I was, I was really interested also to think about, you know, the added complexity about not just, you know, the way that architecture is a sensory, um, you know, that we encounter it with all of our senses, this kind of multi-sensory experience, but that also this added complexity of, of the historical dimension where we think about how people encountered buildings or spaces or urban environments or, or, you know, just, you know, how they, how they sensed differently at another time in history and how we might have similar sort of neurological um, systems, but nonetheless, our cultural and historical and social kind of circumstances are so different. They, they shape a different kind of sensorium, right? A kind of different sensory apparatus. And that, that understanding, I think was really also one of the fascinating things about this project uh, in thinking more about the ways that a different, uh, sort of sensory hierarchy could be brought to bear on some of these sites, how we could begin to reconstruct some of those different sensory um, systems from other times. 
So you, had, you know, you, uh, great, by the way, great explanation. You mentioned the fact that, you know, there isn't as much study on the senses as we would think in architecture school. And so it brings up an interesting point. You know, when I was a student, I, I, am, I briefly touched on, you know, and I always mispronounce this phenomenology. Right. But again, I think, again, and in your book, there's, you actually go into quite a bit of detail into quite of some of the others. And of course, I don't want to quiz you on all of them, but you know, you, you talk about uh, empathy theory, actor network theory, ecological psychology. And so again, I don't want to, of course, quiz you on all of them, but I guess it sounds like quite a bit of the research of the book itself was also based on the study of just how do we see things. Yes, yes. And that, again, was one of the really exciting things for me that this was a, a whole new body of research that I had never encountered. For me, it was just a really fascinating new um, panorama, of, you know, sort of to use a sort of visual term, but it was a, a, a new way of thinking, right? A new, a kind of a whole new um, kind of range of approaches that uh, to bring to bear upon the study of architecture and the study of the built environment. For me, it was, it was fantastic. And, um, yeah, there are all these different approaches in terms of thinking about how we engage with with the world. And this is really moving more in the direction of psychology, which was a field that I had very little um, contact with prior to this. But it was really, you know, exciting to and neuro, sort of neuro, neurological studies, right? Sort of thinking about how the neuroscience, right, which is and sort of realizing how little we still even know, right, that neuroscientists are still kind of plumbing a lot of this information, you know, trying to understand how the synapses work, how we, how our bodies respond, how, how our senses operate. Uh, so none of this is really uh, definitive yet, but there are different met modes that we can explore in terms of thinking about how to understand uh, or how to, how to try to um, gain a better understanding of the, of this interaction that is so much, you know, part of our just every every day every moment that we live um and so yeah phenomenology was just like you were saying it was a word that had been bandied around a lot in architecture school and it had, I had heard many times and hard, I also had a hard time pronouncing this idea right this pheno phenomenological uh, sort of investigation was one that seemed um some somewhat pretentious and sort of un, you know and, and not really very productive but you know, the more that I began to investigate it, it, it actually, I found it fascinating as a way to, I mean, it is simply about the idea of how we experience, right? How, how the phenomena, right? The, the, in the world. And, um, and, but the, that is an approach that was, um, that became popularized in the 1960s and the 1970s um, by Christian Norberg Schultz, who was a very prominent phenomenologist and who did some really interesting work in terms of thinking about how to bring history back into architecture school uh, programs, right? Thinking about, I mean, history being kind of problematic uh, with the advent of modernism, what, you know, how can we reconcile history with, with design? And so his approach, um, which was very successful and really exciting, I think, for a lot of designers, as well as historians, was to um, suggest that you know, the experience of historic buildings can really then, you know, we can bring not so much about the, the style of the building or the, you know, trying to memorize the, you know, the sort of the art historical facts about the building, but really this kind of experiential dimension, which is, you know, something that we can take from those historic sites and translate into modern 
design issues and design concerns. And so that, um, that was a very successful angle. Um, the problem, and this is what I kind of go into in the book and was something that I found also extremely interesting to think more about was the, the, the way that he did it was, um, was, you know, it was, there was one really interesting review of one of his works that pointed to this issue actually in a really kind of um, provocative way to say that he, he um, Norbert Schultz's position was one that was it sort of presumed a kind of universal experience that all of us share a very kind of uniform and to you know at least that there's some sort of equal as or equal dimension right that we could, he, he could say that his experience could really stand for all of us and not just in the present but also sort of projecting back to other times which if you begin to think about it is a really kind of a leveling effect um, and and uh, and doesn't really get to the complexity and nuance of sensory experience and how it is shaped so much by not only individual backgrounds and interests, but also by historical circumstances. And so to try to uh, step back from that universalizing tendency, which I think that was what really was the concern about phenomenology for historians, um, was the challenge of this book, and to try to recuperate in some ways this more particularized experience of people at specific times and specific places which are distinctive to those environments and you know are different i mean that's what makes them so interesting is that they're so different from the ways that we experience these places now um so that was that was sort of the yeah and so that was phenomenology was one of the was one of the sort of bugbears that i had to confront in this project but it became a really interesting and exciting uh dimension and i and i really think you know to to begin to think about these theories and uh i mean these theories can really help you explore these aspects which are again really unresolved and open-ended right and so of course so that you know of course we've been talking a lot about the very obscure and esoteric part of it and so i'd love to kind of dial into some of the more specifics now of course we just won't have enough time to get through everything there's a lot of great images and discussions in the book but there's one in particular, so I've, I've, you know, this book has a lot on all the senses that I haven't heard before, but there's one particular, I've, I've actually never read in any book where they talk about the, the idea of smell. And so I, of course, I'm going to pretend I didn't read it, but uh, you have a very good discussion on how the religious community and buildings actually utilize smell as it is kind of the most mis- mysterious of the five. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but. Yeah, no, thank you. That's, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring that up. And this is something that I've, um, you know, I, I, again, it was an aspect of this book that kind of took on its own life while I was working on this, the thinking about smell as a, as an aspect. I mean, for me, again, sort of the senses in general, um, other than sight, where, you know, I hadn't really dwelt upon them very much. I mean, I really had in terms of my own architectural training, um, and even, you know, going into the graduate school, right into, into um, the history of architecture, I was really focused on, on vision. But then, you know, smell as a, as a sense is probably the most maligned, right, of all of the senses. If we have a, you know, at least in the Western hierarchy, right, that there's a kind of a sensory hierarchy, we think of smell as the kind of disposable. So, I mean, if, you know, and you can ask people sometimes, you know, which sense, if you had the, you know, this is like one of those party games, like, which could you live without, right? I mean, everyone can kind of live without smell. I mean, smell, you know, it's nice, but it's not like, it's kind of, you know, it's not nearly as important as sight, for sure. And so, um, 
to think about smell was to think also about why is that that we don't value smell in our society? Why is smell kind of uh, maybe even almost considered impolite, right? Why do we even try to sort of skirt this issue? I mean, it's considered, you know, not, not appropriate top an inappropriate topic. And so um, that was a really interesting aspect for me to explore and, and to go back and look at this earlier material and to think about also in the Renaissance, in the, in the Italian Renaissance, in, in the 15th century with Leon Battista Alberti, who's writing this big treatise, which is maybe kind of really the cornerstone, right? The um, De Edificatoria, which is the kind of cornerstone for modern theory. Um, the first treatise since Vitruvius, that is an amazing mine field, like mine of, of materials. Um, and, and he talks at length about smell. He's interested in smell and thinking about, um, you know, how we need to control smell. That smell is a really significant aspect of human experience and it shapes the way that we understand the built environment and the world around us. And so he's trying very hard to um, impose certain, certain kinds of boundaries upon the ways that we experience smell. And that in a way does come down to, I mean, I think that's kind of a shift we see in that. That's one of the reasons why this time period is such an interesting one to explore that this seems to be the formation of that kind of a way of thinking about smell, which has then come down to us in the present where we do kind of, you know, like, the kitchen is supposed to be like the smelly part of the house or right. The bathrooms. I mean, we keep those like and they're well ventilated and far away. And, you know, you want to, uh, you know, that all this control issue about the way that we encounter smell in, in even our domestic spaces is something that, that, that Alberti is very clear about. And so then to look in this chapter, which you were referring to in the book, which is about um, a specific site in Northern Italy called Varallo, which is, um, it's a it's called the Sacromonte, um, which is the literally the holy mount um, of Varallo. It was a pilgrimage shrine that was built in the late 15th century by the Franciscans. It was the first of a series of different shrines that were built um, in the, in this kind of model, which were intended to reconstruct the Holy Land in Europe, in Italy, in a place that would be more accessible for pilgrims who are traveling. Um, you know, who, who are trying to do this, you know, this kind of heroic journey of getting to the Holy Land and visiting these sites. Instead, this was more local. And so, you know, they, but they, they set themselves this incredible task of trying to reconstruct, right, to re somehow resurrect, right, the, the sites of Jerusalem, and not just of Jerusalem, but all the sites, you know, the kind of the, the, the sacred scenes, the stories of scripture, to reconstruct them in a way that, that pilgrims could actually inhabit them, that they could go into them, they, they could, you know, be there and see it happen and not just see it, but smell it and taste it and touch it. And, you know, the Franciscans were the ones who invented the um, the nativity scene, right? St. Francis is supposed to have, you know, come up with that idea. And so that you could pick up the, the Christ child, right? That you could cradle it in your arms. They talk, we have, you know, there are texts that talk about that. And so to kiss the baby and to interact very intimately. And so this site, Varallo, beginning to look at it and thinking about all these different senses, um, and especially smell was really was was an amazing thing because it showed you know as I began to explore this material it was clear that the Franciscans were thinking about smell in a very sort of pointed way and um, and that as the pilgrim moved through these chapels their individual chapels that are set across a very verdant green beautiful landscape overlooking the mountains um, they would be immersed right they would move into this chapel and they'd be immersed in this kind of sensory experience and then they'd leave this chapel and be out in a kind of 
green space that would then actually, as they came into the next chapel, right, the senses, the sensory experience would be heightened again, right? This kind of awareness of the way that our senses are, you know, after we're in a place, especially smell, we become habituated to smell. We don't recognize it anymore. We kind of don't pay attention, but moving back and forth and back and forth and back, it like constantly renewed this experience, the kind of the novelty of this experience. And, um, and so thinking finally, you know, I talk in the book about these three particular chapels at the end of this trajectory, which you can imagine would have been kind of grueling, but, um, they get to the, you know, the end of the story, which is of course the crucifixion and then the sepulcher and the body, which is laid out in this tomb. And the, the, these monks have reconstructed just like Jerusalem, right? There's this tomb that the, the pilgrims are supposed to bend down, right? So they have to, like their bodies are forced into this kind of reverential position and they enter into this dark space that is absolutely has no ventilation. And this is like the tomb of Jerusalem. We have descriptions, right? Of Franciscans who were also in charge of that site and who brought people in. So they knew what they were doing, right? There was kind of, you know, these Franciscans knew what the site was like. They had experienced it in, in the Holy land and now they were rebuilding it. And so um, they, this space that is dark, that has no windows, that has no light except for artificial light, which would have been all candles and torches. And the descriptions that we have of these, you know, travelers who say that the um, sepulcher was a kind of a, um, asphyxiating experience, right? Because it was filled with smoke and it was dark or there are these flames, right? But otherwise it's like the walls are blackened and sooty and, uh, and it's very hard to stay there even for a very short amount of time because the smell is so strong and so bad. Uh, great. That very intense description, but a very appreciated. And so of course, again, as I have already hinted at, there's so much more we could be talking about, but in the interest of time, I'd like to close this by asking, you know, since the book's come out, you know, what, what have you been working on next? What project is in your future? Sure. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, right now I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a course. Um, the first time that I've taught this course, actually, it's the first time it's been taught at this college where I teach at Holy Cross, the, um, the introduction to the environmental humanities, um, which is, which has been really exciting. I mean, it's been really, really fantastic uh, to do this. And, you know, we've been speaking with different, uh, we've had different visitors come to talk to us about their work, but also just, you know, reading a lot of really interesting material that has to do with, of course, the, um, the Anthropocene and then, you know, this kind of question of the changing era that we are in, which is shaped so much by human uh, interventions and how the world itself is now, you know, kind of at a geological level bearing the imprint of human activity and, and uh, you know, the sort of connect all this anxiety about, you know, whether you know, the climate change and what we're doing to the world and to our environment, which is, of course, so pressing for so many people. Um, and I, you know, for me, it's, it's really, I think it's kind of been a call to think more about what we do as, you know, thinking about the built environment, right? I mean, that the built environment is inseparable, of course, from the natural world and what we do to the natural world, you know, perhaps the most significant way that we intervene is by building and by uh, shaping the world around us. And, and those things can't be separated from each other. I think we have a tendency to kind of think of these things in opposition that humans are, you know, these bad forces that are 
against nature. I mean, what we do is destroy this kind of natural world. And so this has been a challenge to kind of rethink those, the relationship between humans and the natural world and the way that we interact and, and, and understand the world around us. And this is where I think history, again, can be a really potentially very useful um, and exciting source for us to think about because, the, and there's new work that's being done in this direction, which is thinking about how um, people began to uh, examine the natural world during the, again, this time period of the 15th and the 16th centuries is sort of the beginning of natural history um, and how people are chronicling and documenting uh, and under, you know, examining closely the, the natural environment and thinking about it, you know, contemporary with these new interventions, new thinking about architecture. So my new project is sort of long way around to explain this, but it's, you know, I'm hoping to, I'm beginning to investigate this idea of, of how the origins of natural history in the, in the Renaissance and how it can be tied to the origins of a kind of an architectural um, history that's being shaped at that time, that this kind of, these two things are, are parallel and intertwined and that the way that we think about buildings um, that comes out from that, from, that's derived from that period is really interlinked with the way that we think about nature. And so I want to explore that further in this, in this new book project. No, oh, can't wait to read it someday. <laughs> great. Well, thank you. Well, great. I want to thank you for taking the time to speaking with me today. Thank you again very much. Uh, for everyone listening, the book is Architecture and the Senses in the Italian Renaissance, The Varieties of Architectural Experience. To everyone listening, thank you and have a great day. Thank you.